welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, hey, this is episode number 171. Now, if you were paying attention last week, you'll notice I said it was episode 166, when in fact last week was episode 170. How that happened, I really can't explain very well, uh, other than that I misread some things on my notes, um, and somehow the, the number, I, I lost over 170, and I just said, oh yeah, this is 166, so I said that. But it was not, it was 170, but everything else is, is good, everything else is good. I think part of the problem was I was taken a little bit aback by the um, some of the blowback about low number Springfields and um, why they should probably not be used. You know, that's just a generational lesson. Um, I had to learn it. I had never heard of that. I didn't know anything about that. And a lot of people don't. And then when they hear the problem and realize that the gun they're staring at in their, their gun closet or their gun safe is a low number Springfield, a lot of people want to wish the problem away. But you can't do it. And, um, you know, I, it brought to me a question that I think no one has ever asked, but I think should be asked. And that is, what? who are the authors that you should really read to get a good base foundation in firearms? And I would say that one of those books is Hatcher's Notebook, which covers the 1903 Springfield problem very, very well. It also talks about the 1917 rifle and, and all kinds of other things. Um, one of the most interesting things they cover is, you know, there's a myth, an urban myth that's around and, and you hear it propagated everywhere and on the radio that if someone shoots a bullet up in the air, that it's going to come down and kill someone. You know, if you shoot it straight up in the air, it'll come down and kill someone. Um, that is not true. And Hatcher, the U.S. Army tested this in the 1920s. Uh, they went down to Daytona Beach, which was abandoned. They went to the New Jersey shore and they went to Miami Beach. These places were abandoned at the time, basically. Nobody, nobody was there. And they would fire and they were interested in the long range effect of a 30 6 You know, how high would it go? Um, could it be used for indirect fire? All these kind of things that don't, don't really apply now. But one of the things they figured out was if you fired it straight up in the air, um, when it came back down, it cu- it doesn't come down point first. It comes back base first. And it only reaches a certain velocity. Now, <laughs> don't get me wrong. It's not like this isn't going to hurt. But if it hits you in the noggin, it won't kill you. <laughs> but I guarantee it's going to hurt. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's one of those things of... of Here you think it's a death ray that somebody fires up in the air and when the bullet comes down, it's going to kill scores of people. But in fact of the matter, it's not true. And I would say that it would probably, um, if you fire a 5.56 up in the air from a dreaded AR-15 nonetheless, um, that when that bullet finally goes all the way up, runs out of steam and starts falling back down, uh, that's probably going to have even less of an effect than a uh, 30 caliber um, U.S. Ball M1 uh, cartridge would, you know, bullet from one of those cartridges, which was like 172 grains, if I remember. So, um, you know, there's there's this, all this stuff is in Hatcher's Notebook. And Hatcher's Notebook is something that everyone needs to buy and read. It's still in print. 
you can get um, all kinds of, um, you know, find it on used bookstores and everything else. Probably find it used through like thrift books or, or able books or something. But that's one thing that uh, everybody should get a hold of a copy of that. Uh, you won't find all of it completely interesting, but you'll find most of it exceptionally interesting. I mean, this guy, as I said in the last podcast, this guy was, he was a mixture of ordinance officer, trainer, uh, scientist, and a guy with a lot of common sense. And when you read, and he writes writes very, very well, it's actually a pleasure to read, unlike some of the other things which are very dry. But it's a, um, you read that and you go, this is, this guy knows what he's talking about. And, uh, you know, I hate to see that people have to relearn lessons, like with the Springfields. Um, if one of those blows up, I mean, they had some, they had some bad injuries where, you know, the chunk of the receiver went into the guy's chest and punctured his lung. I mean, there were a lot of, a couple people lost eyes, a couple people lost this. Now, you know, you can make all the rationalization arguments that, well, the ones that were going to blow up already have, and all the rest of it, which of all, all those arguments don't make any sense. Or statistically, you know, I have a greater chance of, of uh, getting run over by a, a water buffalo. Well, they, th- those are all based on, on basically false statistics because we don't know how many of them actually failed. It could be a lot higher number than anybody would like to see. But when you actually read through and Hatcher has all of the, he has them case by case, rifle by rifle. And, um, you know, they, the thing that should, should stand out to you is they found out that the low number receiver would destruct at about 75,000 PSI. Okay, so whatever would cause it to fail, if whatever caused it to have a pressure higher than 75,000 PSI, that receiver would fail. The double heat treat and nickel steel receivers could go to 125,000 PSI and still not fail. So there you are, you know, that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty stark thing. Um, now there, on the other side of the coin, I understand millions of rounds were fired through the uh, low number Springfields, you know, so, um, I'm cognizant of that too. It's just a question of risk. The the youngest of those rifles, the newest one, low Springfield, low number Springfields are 106 years old now. So that's that's something else. I know steel doesn't age. You know, it does. It's not like wood; it gets rotten or anything. But you know, you just think and you go, you know, how much luck am I pushing? So anyway, uh, speaking of. Uh, Speaking of fools with guns, um, little little baby Biden, it just got he just got his wrist slapped. I mean, the justice system in this country is irretrievably broken. When Hunter Biden for tax evasion of all this graft money, they don't ask what the money's about, but it's all this graft money, um, and he didn't even pay taxes on the money he was getting for bribes and graft and corruption. Um, he pays that and gets a little slap on the wrist for that. And the felony, felony gun law that he broke, the felony, that just gets, oh, he goes into a diversion program. 
whatever that means. What that means is he won't have a felony on his uh, deal. So that's what that means. Now, would they do that for you or I or, you know, Joe off the street? I don't think so. Uh, it looks to me like uh, they look for reasons to stick it to, you know, the average man. And um, meanwhile, the protected class just laws don't apply to them. So why should they? Um, don't They don't apply to his old man, the crooked old liar who's who was, you know, he had classified documents. He's the big guy. He's the guy who threatened the Ukraine if they didn't replace the prosecutor looking into Hunter that he would withhold the uh, billions in aid. All that just washes away. Well, that's the country you live in. That's the country we have. And uh, we've got to improve that. Talking about Ukraine, I guess we're in the counter-offensive counter phase. Um, you know, it's basically a stalemate, and now people are realizing it. People are realizing that, you know, hey, this is kind of, this looks more like World War One than World War One does in some ways. I mean, there are tremendous defenses, and face it, a counteroffensive for it to be successful has to gain and liberate a lot of territory quickly. Um, right now, it seems just to be grinding up against... Uh, the Russian line. I, I mean, it's a joke. It's just like World War One. They said, "Well, they've they've made a 6.2 kilometer advance," and I'm like, "Oh man, that sounds like World War One. You know, 20,000 lives to get two miles. You know, and look, look you know, I mean, uh, it, it's it's almost like they're taking just enough land to bury their casualties in. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous." This is either either this is going to be allowed to go on, or there is going to be a deal has to be struck, and it may not be to everyone's liking, but a deal needs to be struck, or else this is going to become another one of these never-ending horrible wars. Oh, and uh, related to that, a friend of the podcast sent me a video this uh, Prigozhin guy the head of the Wagner mercenary group and uh, he's in some cache a cave system they took from the uh, Ukrainians near Bakhmut I guess and this thing just had massive boxes of appears to be Moisin Nagants it appears to be um, PPSH weapons, and then even crates of World War II Lend-Lease Thompsons, basically brand new, just sitting there. Um, yeah, and he said, I couldn't get any takers. And I was like, well, I'd, I'd take a crate, but I don't think you can get there from here, here from there, I should say. But uh, it's amazing. Um, now, these are the same Ukrainians that took delivery of a whopping 200 Keltec what are they called? The sub-2000, the semi-automatic 9mm? I don't know about you. I don't know about you. But I'd much rather have a Thompson <laughs> than a Keltec. I mean, I, I just, maybe it's me, but I'd much rather have the Thompson any, any day of the week. Ammo might be hard to get, but they could go to PPU or something and buy some and, and have it. But it, it's amazing... You know, we think the Milserp stuff has dried up, and, and from the easy to get, but there are a lot of places out there where we absolutely 
um, can find some stuff. And I mean, Cuba's going to have a buttload of stuff. We're getting real friendly with Vietnam now, something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. But we're getting real friendly with them. There's going to be all kinds of stuff come out of there. Um, there's, there's still a lot of places, Venezuela, if that government ever changes. Um, there's, there's going to be some more Milsurp that hits the market. It may take a while, but it's definitely coming. Another, another interesting thing is the 277 Fury. You know, I mean, there, this, this was new hotness. Now it's people looking around at, number one, the, the rifles that shoot it, the SIG civilian version of the, the rifle that's, uh, that they're apparently making for the Army, the M5. Uh, the, apparently those things are going for like class three money you know like ten thousand bucks something like that um so people are kind of looking for alternatives and now i don't know why anybody would think what i have to say is worth anything but if you really want that um the, uh, the best alternative you can get is an ar-10 in 762 nato because it will do almost everything that the 277 fury will do um, and you can get it in whatever configuration. You can get it to look just about like it. It'll be a great substitute for it. And the ammunition is attainable and a lot less expensive. I mean, um, 762 NATO, it'll still cost you probably a buck a round, but that's pretty cheap compared to a lot of the other alternatives. Um, if you really want the long-range performance, I would suggest going to an AR-10. Same thing, set it up however you want to set it up in 6.5 Creedmoor and you will have a great or if you want one of the other 6.5s that, that performs uh, about the same that would be that would be fine um, another thing that would be interesting would be a 243 Winchester um, you know that have one of those set up in an AR that would give you some interesting capability too so there are alternatives out there uh, for the fanboys who have to have the same thing that that the uh, real operators are having, uh, there will be no substitute. But you know, for the rest of us that just kind of see this as well, they're they're putting a more capable cartridge, a very capable cartridge into you know something that looks kind of familiar. Hey, there are other alternatives. So there you go. Oh, another thing to talk about. Hey, the stock brace lawsuit. You know, I, I was pretty skeptical at first, but I think they got a pretty good chance of winning that. I think that, uh, um, you know, the ATF overreaches like they always do. But turning thousands and thousands of people into felons. And the, and the real problem with this is, okay, you could register them, but if you were in a state where a brace is legal, because they were legal everywhere, but and SBR is not, hey, then you're stuck, and they've turned you into a criminal unless you destroy the thing or something. So uh, I think this is totally overreaching, totally unconstitutional, totally, you know, this this should come under the constitutional provision of an ex post facto law. Um, things that were legal, all of a sudden they make it illegal and then try to go back and punish you. That's, you know, I realize this is a regulation, but it appears that uh, he may get rebuked. Congress doesn't want any part of this. And there are even Democrats in Congress that don't want any part of this. The courts look like they're about ready to turn it back. So we'll see how it goes. Hopefully this, this will go away. Uh, 
Ooh, here's an interesting thing. Apparently, there is technology out there. I'm not a huge, you know, cutting-edge technology guy, as you could probably tell from the poor quality of my podcast. But um, I just wanted to tell you that uh, apparently there there is a way that thermal cameras, you know, just like a thermal sight, it sees heat, so it can see through clothing. Apparently, these things can see a gun because your body will heat the gun sufficiently so that its outline is detectable by a thermal camera very interesting very interesting and apparently some of these things were already in use so you know now again how revolutionary is this well you know they have magnetometers right i mean you go to a courthouse um they put you through a magnetometer you go fly on the airlines you go through a magnetometer and in a lot of schools you go through a magnetometer so it's not like it's um you know this huge breakthrough because there are there is technology out there that would detect a concealed firearm you know because they they don't want them in courtrooms they don't want them in uh airplanes and they don't want them in inner city schools obviously so um that's what's that's what's happening uh you know how do you combat this because i guess you would have no idea unless there's a sign saying you know thermal camera weapon detection system in use you wouldn't know so you know carrying it in your appendix carry may may not help uh that's when i think you could look at off-body carry as a as a good option i a lot of people they everybody talks against it but i've always liked off-body carry for just a variety of reasons um it, it just there's a convenience factor that i really like now there's also however you're carrying it whether it's in your man purse or your backpack or however else there's there are accessibility and hey if you lose that particular piece of equipment that your gun is inside then you know you're without it so you know it, it's certainly not a panacea but i've often thought off body carry is a very good thing and here it would be perfect because the gun would not radiate any heat it wouldn't pick up any heat from your body to radiate out so um there you go uh that would be one way to defeat it another way might be a ccw vest that's got a thermal barrier uh, and that could be as simple as maybe tin foil or something just thinking not knowing how these things actually work um to the degree that they work you know, maybe maybe there's uh, some kind of tin foil lining, some kind of foil lining, metal foil or metal mesh lining that could go into these, you know, CCW vests so that the vest is draped over the gun. Well, they can't see through the mesh with the thermal camera, so they can't detect your firearm. So uh, there, there's going to be ways around this. People will come up with a way around it, I'm sure. But, you know, some of the traditional things and uh, aren't going to work and and you know even polymer guns have enough steel in them so that they can they're susceptible to this because no gun is 100 percent polymer but you know the uh so the slide the barrel and some of the other things and all they got to do is adjust their i think the word is algorithms so that when they pick up what looks like a slide in a barrel and trigger parts um they'll you know it'll recognize the the system would recognize it as a firearm so very very interesting stuff going on um you know and it pays to keep ahead of it pays to keep ahead of it
uh, thermal thermal sites yeah, that, that could change a lot of things that could change a lot of things all right here is my favorite part questions and answers and we got a got a bunch of them today let's see my p14 enfield will ignite commercial ammo but will not ignite military ammo what can i do to correct this uh the p14 was the if you know what a u.s model 1917 is the p14 was its direct ancestor um it, it's a very interesting gun and again to go back to hatcher oh this things are things are always kind of go, go back to hatcher today he said it was a very advanced design and he liked it quite a bit and that's one of the reasons that you know there was a consensus that adopting the p14 modifying it, it to 30 out six thus becoming the model 1917 would be a a pretty good thing so um it was it's a very advanced design um it's really the best designed rifle in world war one actually came about because p is the british thing for pattern that's just like we used to say f for fighter you know um p is pattern and uh, the british were in the boer war okay spanish made mausers seven millimeter mausers um were defeating the british the british were basically they had the 303 long lees and they were getting outranged by the seven millimeter mauser mauser model 19 uh, 93s and 96s so um in keeping with the finest of military traditions and saying what weapons do i need to fight the last war they decided that the the lee and even short magazine lee enfield which came out right after it after the boer war uh they they needed a long range mauser style rifle to combat this so the next time they would be in that situation they would have a rifle at least equal to their enemy so they designed a 276 cartridge to go with it they had this design it looks like a u.s model 1917 rifle the finger grooves are a little different and all this stuff and they were noodling around with this thing for oh five or six years i guess you know figuring out at first they figured out what features do we want do we not want they made the rifles saying what needs to be changed a few little things came out and then they were looking to hey um all of a sudden it became the pattern 13 13 meaning 1913 ominous because the war was going to start a year the next year well they were looking around and nobody in england really you know they were kind of looking at putting this into production you know still that kind of you know peacetime bureaucracy war starts and they say shelve the project man we can't we can't do it uh they basically say but these things are going to be pretty much easier to produce than the SMLE. So they, they go over and they talk to Remington, Winchester, and Winchester and uh, say, can you make these for us? And make them in 303 because we're not going to change cartridges. So that, that happened. We produced like over a million of these things for the British. By the time all was said and done, they, um, they didn't want them. <laughs> they didn't really want them. Um, they found that it would have been perfect in southern africa to have a rifle like this 
even in an inferior cartridge like 303, which 303 is. But with the 276, it would have been perfect for the Boer War, but it, they weren't in the Boer War anymore. They were in World War One. Combat ranges were a lot closer. Um, the SMLE did great in the muddy environment of the trenches because the rear locking lug didn't get clogged up with mud like front locking lugs would. Um, the SMLE had no real problem with the the 303 British cartridge which is an obsolete cartridge because it's got a big rim on it so consequently um, you know they, they got these things the, the SMLE had a 10 shot magazine this had a 5 shot magazine Mauser style magazine and they all looked at it and they said hey the SMLE is good to go we can now make plenty of them by the time they got these rifles they could make plenty of SMLEs they didn't really need them so they kind of put them on the back burner but meanwhile, we had three factories set up to produce these things. World War One breaks out, and they figured that, you know, if Rock Island really got rolling, they could do 400 rifles a day, and Springfield Armory might be able to hit 1,000 rifles a day. Um, we were, at that time, you know, we probably had three-quarters of a million various rifles in stock, about 600,000 Springfields. You know, about 150,000 leftover crags, probably some trapdoors and things. So we didn't really have much. We needed a lot and needed it fast. They looked at, first thing they said was, we could just produce these things in 303. We'll use 303. We'll do that. Uh, they said, with a little bit of tweaking, give us a couple of weeks, a little bit of tweaking, we'll have them in 30 out six. That way we got one cartridge for everything. So Springfields and these new rifles which they christened 1917 Enfields. They actually called it US Model 1917. Enfield is just a nickname. So um, they've got all these. They're great rifles. They work. The 30-06 version works good. Even the other version works really good. They just didn't need it. So uh, these are good Mauser style rifles. They, you know, but you know, they're all about 100 years old now or, or older. So some little things go wrong, and I had this very same problem. Mine would ignite commercial ammo, and it would periodically ignite military surplus 303. So uh, you just change out the bolt spring, and that will cure, that will cure the problem. Um, if that does not cure the problem, then you have uh, a worse problem, and you may have... Uh, a 19 you may have a firing pin issue or something that you got to sort out um, the parts between the two rifles are not completely interchangeable there's a lot that won't interchange especially in the bolt mechanism and all that so um, got to be kind of careful and uh, but with a little bit of the spring will probably cure the problem and this is this is awesome because this came actually from the same source if the p14 was superior to the smle why didn't it replace it well, because the, the war that it was designed for did not happen. It was designed for wide open spaces, shooting hundreds, if not maybe even close to a thousand yards, um, with this high intensity cartridge that could outperform the seven millimeter Mauser. That war didn't happen. The war that happened was trenches, maybe 200 yards apart, going up over the top, um, a 10 round magazine not really that big of an advantage 
in a lot of ways, but if, to the individual, it's a big advantage because it means I got 10 shots before I have to reload. They've done fire comparisons, and it's like fire 100 rounds out of that in a Mauser, and, and it takes about the same amount of time because the Lee Enfield loads a little bit slower. You know, whatever all that is, but the 10-shot magazine was looked was good. Uh, it was very reliable in the mud, and so they kept the SMLE until the uh, Invarious guises until the 1950s so that's why i didn't replace it the other thing the other reason it didn't replace it was the factory that made all these p14s were in the united states and all of a sudden now they're making model 1917s so you know halfway through the year of 1917 there are no more factories that can make p14s so therefore you know <laughs> you they're back at square one where they got to find a source for these things because the factories that made them are now making something else. It's similar, but it's not the same. Okay, you said earlier the Craig Carbine was excellent for jungle fighting in the Spanish-American War in Cuba and the Philippines. Why? Um, I, I will tell you that if you're in Cuba and the Philippines, and you you know you hear about all how great the you know the Spanish Mauser was and and all the rest of it. Um, you hear all that, but the fact of the matter is a lot of that fighting was in very dense vegetation in jungles, especially in the Philippines, I would imagine. And uh, a carbine was was really a nice weapon to have because it's so handy. Um, you don't need the long range, so the 7mm cartridge is, does not have an advantage over the 30-40 Krag at that point. The cool part of the crag is that you can just, if you fire two shots, you can open that side magazine and you can drop two more rounds in and you're topped off again. Whereas if you fire three out of the, out of a Spanish Mauser or two, you can't just clip load another five. You have to really kind of run it dry, then clip load it again. So uh, it also had very good sights, the crags. Now, You'd have to be an accountant to keep track of all the different sites that Crags had and which ones were on the carbines and all the rest. But the carbine was a it was an excellent lightweight. Um, by virtue of the fact that the 3040 Crag was not that powerful, it does not have punishing recoil. It's it's got pretty mild recoil, so it's it was it was outstanding. It was not in jungle fighting, close in fighting. It was not outclassed by the Spanish Mauser in any appreciable way. And I would say that it had a lot of advantages going for it. So, yeah, that was a, that was a good... And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, over the years they had um, the, the Philippine auxiliaries, you know, the Philippine constabulary and, and some of these things. They, they actually made up special... They modified crags to to fit the shorter statures and, and all that. And they had a lot of the carbine traits. I, I think the biggest thing was they, they could, in these special models they made, and they made these after the Springfield was adopted, so this is going to the teens and 20s, um, they could uh, mount a bayonet on it because that was seen, that's something that the uh, cavalry uh, carbine cannot do. Um, so anyway, they, they did that. Ah... Uh. Is it okay to use 220 grain bullets 
220 grain 30-06 bullets, meaning rounds, in my M1 Garand rifle? Um, the answer to that is no, it is not. And again, there's, there's a lot of discussion. Um, idiots on the internet will tell you that they can do that, but the M1 was designed for... it. You know, if you have a 1903 Springfield or an 03A3, you can fire whatever 30-06 round, any factory round, you can fire through it. Now, it may not match the sight, the graduation, the range graduations on the sight, but it'll be safe. It'll fire through that. It's just, it's just the way it is. But when you introduce that into the Garand, which has a gas-operated self-loading system, uh, things like port pressure and all this other kind of stuff factor in. And I, I can't really explain it all in a cogent way, but different rounds and different different bullet weights generate different port pressures. Some of those port pressures will damage an M1 rifle, specifically the op rod. So the best thing to do, you have an M1 rifle, um, 150 grain stuff is is probably uniformly safe. The best ammunition to use is stuff that's marked on the box, formulated for the M1 Garand. PPU makes it. So do probably a couple other people, a couple other companies. So that's the best to use. Um, just because a cartridge fits in a gun does not make it safe and does not make it smart to use. Um, you have to kind of know. Uh, there are some, and if you want to use all that, just go with the bolt action rifle, whether it's a sporting rifle or a, a surplus rifle. And there are plenty of 30 out 6 bolt actions out there, not only the 1903-1917, but there's also the, uh, there were some couple of South American models, you know, so you can use those. All right, next questions. Are revolvers making a resurgence? Yes. I've talked about this before. Revolvers are making a stronger comeback than you'd think. Um, people appreciate the quality. They appreciate the uh, durability, they, they appreciate the ruggedness of a revolver. You know, it doesn't have the little flimsy magazines that go in and you get a dent on it or crack it or something and then your, your gun is not useful. So um, they, they have all that. It's simple. They're simplistic. Hey, you know, you have, you have your, uh, and, and it's a misnomer to say they all have their six shooters and have six shots because a lot of them have have more now, uh, especially smaller caliber ones. Um, the thing I've never gotten to work well for me is in under a stress situation are speed loaders. Um, speed loaders are hard to use. Um, there are some really high-end ones though that I've not tried which probably are a lot better but um, you know that's that's the thing if you're gonna be in a long uh, drawn-out situation definitely a revolver and reloading it are gonna be um, something you have to consider but I would say that um, my experience is for most of the things I, I use a weapon for they're fine you know they're they're absolutely fine and and uh, um, a lot of people even use older pattern revolvers you know single actions to uh, for their daily you know kind of stuff so Yes, the revolver is making a strong comeback. Okay, next question. Why did rifles with 22 to 26 inch barrels replace the 
rifles that had a 30 inch or even in some cases longer barrel? Why was there a move to shorten the barrel? Um, okay, that's really simple in many ways. Uh, number one, the longer barrels, one of the functions of those was so that you could be like like in the movie Zulu when they're firing in ranks, you know, you could you need a long barrel to reach over the guy kneeling in front of you and you know you don't want to you don't want that thing popping right in his ear or right in his face you want it out at least out above him and in front of him a little bit so that was one of the functions of the 30 inch barrel the other function was to get the best ballistic advantage they could out of um out of the early smokeless powder rounds which were usually had a round nose bullet they were usually pretty heavy and they needed to push those things pretty hard uh, and the way that you could really do that was with a long barrel give the powder more time to combust and push the uh, uh, bullet faster faster bullet better trajectory and all the rest also bigger the recoil <laughs> But and and you know that was another advantage that the uh, thirty-inch barrel would absorb some of the recoil. You know the extra weight in the rifle would absorb some of the recoil. So it was not a bad idea. Uh, you also had your sight, a long sight radius. So you know there was an accuracy um, dividend there. So it had a lot of dividends. Where it did not have dividends is um, it makes the rifle clunky kind of unwieldy uh, not something that you really want to uh, fight close quarters in so uh, the cavalry which is which is a close quarters proposition and fast reloading and need to have a fast handling weapon would need a carbine because a carbine version of the rifle because um, the 30 inch barrel doesn't work on horseback or, or in closed spaces and you know if your hands are controlling reins the more awkward and unwieldy the the weapon is it just didn't work so if you had the 30 inch barrel you almost every country adopted some sort of a carbine that went to you know artillery engineers and cavalry so uh going to the universal rifle and the springfield is an excellent example hey it's got a uh, 23.5 inch barrel or whatever it is um, everybody could use it and the cavalry said hey ballistically our instead of a carbine we've got something that's a little more powerful uh, the ground troops the infantry said these are a lot easier to use um, they're a lot lighter we can carry them farther um, they handle a lot better so that's why countries eventually just went down to that and then that really went through the battle rifle era. Uh, battle rifles usually had 22 to, you know, sometimes 20, but 22, maybe 24 inch barrels, um, or at least functionally because they had the flash suppressors on them when we got into the semi-automatic ones like the FAL and the M14 and, and even the G3, which has a smaller, more truncated one. Um, you know, it, it kind of kept that universal rifle appeal so no matter where you were you you basically um you had only you had only one kind of rifle it was issued to everybody everything was simpler and, and it worked out it, it was 
it was functional for everybody it was issued to. Now the the problem came in later on when you know special operations and all these other things decided we can't use the universal rifle we need a carbine again basically so that's when we started going to car 15s and everything that's which eventually led to the m4 you know everybody wants a carbine because it's cool and it looks cool they think the perception is it's a lot more cool and um so consequently, you know, the carbine has kind of made a comeback, and it's really made a comeback. There's always there's a short-barreled version of nearly every standard infantry weapon, even though the infantry weapons that are out there were all essentially engineered to to be multi-role firearms and fill, you know, for every uh, um, every different aspect that it was supposed to. So. You know that's that's one of the uh, one of the reasons all the old reasons to have a long barrel are gone. The kind of universal rifle barrel, you know, kind of the uh, one you could issue to everybody um, that worked. And then you know, special operations and other things decided we need shorter shorter barrels for CQB and other things. So. That's where that came. Uh, the Garand is probably, you know, the Garand could have been issued to everybody, but um, it was actually, that's, you know, the Garand actually spawned the M1 carbine. People said, well, the Garand is a little bit bigger, and we've got NCOs, radio operators, mortarmen, all kinds of truck drivers, all kinds of people who could probably use a Garand, but something lighter cheaper a little higher capacity um less powerful would be would would actually fill the bill a lot better and um you know it's all they were also cheaper you know building an m1 carbine uh was a lot cheaper than building an m1 grand so um you know they they could crank those out and give them to the specialty troops who wanted and needed them and uh you know, it worked out pretty well, but we could have gotten on with the Grand. I always thought it was very interesting. General um, James Gavin, who at the end of the war was commanding general of the 82nd Airborne, and, you know, really an awesome, he's a pretty awesome character. He wrote wrote a couple books, and they're well worth reading. I think On to Berlin was his, his really his uh, best book. But he carried Grand as a general officer. You know, hey, you're jumping in. You want the most powerful weapon you can carry, and that wasn't an M1 carbine, that was a Garand. And I think when he was in charge of the 82nd, I do believe that they minimized the use of Garands and other things. Or not, no, I said that wrong. They minimized the use of M1 carbines and other things in favor of the Garand. Um, I don't know if they did that with Thompson's because the Thompson was a pretty good weapon to have. You know, and and that's that begs the question well why do the m1 carbine why not just give these other people thompson's and the answer was weight thompson is a very very heavy it weighs as much i think i think i'd say that thompson weighs almost as much as a grand i think so you wouldn't save anything on the weight it'd be a little more portable um but the m1 carbine was very easy to use you can even shoot it one-handed um, you know, if you've got a radio receiver in one hand and all of a sudden a bad guy shows up 10 yards away from you, uh, you can shoot that. It, it'd be a little more challenging with a Thompson, but um, it definitely uh, was a fast handling 
good weapon. So there is use for carbines, what we now call PDWs. We don't call, really call them, don't like calling them carbines, kind of like calling them uh, PDWs. So personal defense weapons. So that's a, uh, that's definitely, definitely out there. Here's another question. What is the best issue handgun of the Second World War? That's too broad for me to answer. I can say, because I was trained on it, because I carried it, the, the 1911 is would be my first choice. But I would say that um, the Browning High Power and Walther P38 would come. Everything else is just everything else. And those were the three top handguns of, of World War II. Um, that's just that's just no two ways about that. Um, they're all three excellent, all three reliable, uh, all three are reasonably good to hit with. Um, you know, they all have pretty good sights. Um, you know, they kind of improved in 43, they improved the 1911 sight a little bit, made it a little easier to see. And uh, the P-38 always had excellent sights, I thought. For a World War II issue era, you know, uh, handgun, it had excellent sights. Um, I've never cared for the P1 as much as I like the P38. The, the all steel frame really, I really like that a lot better. But um, they're great guns. I mean, they're absolutely. Um, you know, I, I kind of say that, uh, you know, these guys who all are, are going gaga over these 2011s, which is the 9mm 1911, which is higher capacity and all the rest of it. Hey, man, John Browning beat you to the punch man i mean he the the nine millimeter 1911 is called browning high power basically so you know i i would um, before i put a lot of money into a 2011 i would probably if i wanted the thing i would probably trick out a uh, a browning high power just as a it would be a lot more cost effective the parts are there the gunsmiths know it yeah, it'd be a lot better. Okay, here's another question. Why is it you have a higher opinion of the Moisen Nagant rifle than do the YouTube experts such as CNR Arsenal, etc.? Um, I, I don't know that I have a higher opinion of the Moisen Nagant M91. What I tend to look at, and other people don't, in my opinion, is if you take World War II rifles and compare them up against each other. To my mind, there's only really two categories. There's the bolt action, and then there's the semi-automatic slash select fire, which there was only really one of those. So, you know, the bolt actions were all fundamentally, they, they all, except for the Lee Enfield, they all had five shots. Um, they all required you to, you know, rotate a bolt, the whole thing. So they weren't, there wasn't that big a difference between those. So, I mean, uh, you know, I just kind of look at it. I don't see a big difference there. So, to me, it doesn't matter. You either had the bolt actions, which were second rate, or you had the semi-automatics, which were first rate. The, the other thing they don't do is they don't compare the Moisen Nagant M1891, and I know they didn't make them till 1892, but, you know, they basically, that was late 1880s, early 1890s. 
they were coming up with this rifle. You know, they were testing, figuring out what they wanted and everything else. If you compare the Moisin Nagant rifle against the Labelle, the Longley, the Crag, and those are the, and even the Berthier, because that came out about 1892. Um, you, you compare it against these rifles that took, well, you know, the battle rifle rimmed cartridges. And the Moisson again is probably the best one. I mean, it, it, it is the best one. I mean, the Crag is really nice, but that weird, you know, magazine on the side is, is goofy. The Moisson again at least had, you know, clip-fed um, firing. The uh, the Long Lee had to be reworked later into the SMLE. Um, LaBelle, that was, you know, an anachronism, really. Just a rifle that they could throw together the quickest to get the smokeless cartridge out there. Not a bad rifle, but it was clearly outmoded by World War I. Uh, the, the British 88 Commission rifle, about the same as a Moisin de Gant. Not really that great, not really that bad. Um, you know, you get into the rimless cartridges, you really don't get a step in improvement till you hit the first, it's the 93, the 96, then the 98 Mausers. And you can argue back and forth how much better they are. The, the, I consider the Moisin de Gant and, and the Lee Enfield to be about the same. I mean, the, um, yeah, Lee Enfield's got a 10-shot magazine. Okay, it's kind of slower slower loading, but yeah, it's got it. Um, but as a action and a design, I mean, it's no more advanced, really. Um, where the, the only place where you can really kind of fault the, the czarist Russians is they never developed the design for widespread use. I mean, they kept the, the, the really long barrel they kind of kept the spiky bayonet, which, you know, probably wasn't the best choice, but, you know, it's eminently serviceable, so you can't really criticize that too much. Uh, but they, they never really updated that. They, yeah, they, they monkeyed with the sights and, and went from hex receivers to round receivers, but they kind of kept the same barrel length. They did have a few carbines, but those were specialty deals. They never went to a universal short rifle the way the United States, Britain, and, and a few other countries did. So that's the that's the thing you can blame them on. Um, what I would, what I would say is that you know when it comes to shooting, they're no more. At, they're a few things like that um, and, and it's I'm surprised actually how long they last you know you can you can find a rifle that's had the same um, essentially bolt mainspring for a hundred years and it still works but then you can tell that it's it's gotten weaker and it, and it may not do the uh, hard military primers that's usually the indication to me that the spring is bad but I've got some that are that old that, that are still still cranking away so I think it you really have to 
you really have to be very careful about how you judge some of these rifles. And when you judge it to its contemporaries, Moisin de Gant is fine. It's actually, I think, preferable. And it was a very serviceable arm through two world wars. I mean, nobody ran around screaming, this is complete garbage. And actually, two world wars, and it was used into Korea and Vietnam. And, and you know, there's still some, there's still some in use around somewhere. Um, every once in a while, you'll see a Moisin de Gant sniper, you know, out there with the, you know, three power scope and all that. A 3.5 power scope so you'll see that and it will be a you know kind of an anachronism but you kind of look at it and say you know it's it's still it still does everything it's supposed to do so i don't have the poor opinion of it um i i will say that i i don't watch cn arsenal or cnr arsenal however they pronounce it uh, I don't really watch it that much. I, I I like the fact. I think they do good research. You know, the the, the kind of uh, bearded, you know, Castro-looking guy is. He does he does pretty good research. I I think the the young lady they got who's their weapons tester is is a fool. I mean, she's a fool. And the I I never forget one of the episodes, and I haven't watched it in a while, but. They said, well, she's about the size of a World War I soldier. That could be true, but she does not have the strength. Um, her basic rifle marksmanship abilities don't... I mean, you can see her basic marksmanship skills and her basic rifle handling skills aren't very good. Um, she, she does not tuck the rifle tightly into her shoulder when she's firing. Therefore, it slams back... And you see the incredible flinch. You see the big flinch she has when uh, they do this. Th that's all, you know, because they've put a person out there who's not as well trained as what you would what you would want. Um, you know, and then when they ask the opinion, well, would you carry this in combat? I mean, she is in no way qualified to do that. And it's a foolish question anyway, because you're never really asked what weapons you want to carry in combat unless you are a member of an extremely elite or high priority unit then you may have some latitude there may be a couple of choices you can make but there's never a wide open carte blanche of well what would you take um, the weapons are issued to you and you better figure out how to make them work to your purpose um, just, just the way it is um, that's why they put so much time into testing and evaluation and everything to make sure that they get the best all-around choice that's going to fulfill all of its uh, requirements you know it's that's that's just simple but uh, you know I, again looking back it's it's difficult to say to put down one particular rifle is really pretty pretty ridiculous because you have to look at the context which I thought that they were trying to do under which it was adopted and say well, this might not be perfect, but it's perfect enough. So that's that's what I would say. Does the war in Ukraine, will the war in Ukraine have a any kind of impact on small arms design, use, modification, or anything else? I think the question they're asking is, what will be done? Is there going to be any useful experience that will change small arms? Uh, I have to say no, because I don't think it's going to go on long enough. Um, 
as far as changes goes, I think they're maybe going back to some basics. I think they're probably going to de-emphasize um, optical sights on just regular rifles. I think another another thing that may come out of it is there'll be a de-emphasis on the military handgun. I think that, and that's been going on for a long time. Uh, the, the conventional wisdom and mythology is is that during a war, everybody wants to get their hand on a handgun because in the in the most dire circumstances it could make a difference. The, the fact of the matter is that's usually not the case. They're usually going after, they usually increase the maintenance and vigilance on their issued arms. If you're a machine gunner, you are much more valuable carrying, rather than two pounds of pistol and pistol ammunition, uh, carrying another two pound box of machine gun ammunition makes you a lot more effective and valuable to the organization and probably able better able to defend yourself so uh, there are a lot of there's a lot of mythology about people you know carrying pistols certainly some of the use does increase but it's not as important as people think and I have no inside track or knowledge of this but I look at the pictures and I don't see a lot of people carrying handguns in addition to their long guns so I'm wondering is there is that going to be a trend where they basically say look rather than buy a $200 handgun or even a 100 or AK um, why would we you know why are we even fooling with handguns other than you know the usual things of well that's what a general will carry around or, or that's what behind the lines military police might use uh, something like that I mean it, it's going to be I think de-emphasized um, and just kind of it, it becomes more of a peacetime garrison uh, badge of rank type thing than a useful fighting thing so uh, that's what I think I, I mean you know it simplifies a lot of things I mean could there be a rise in PDWs that a PDW in a different caliber is going to get you anywhere uh, that an M4 carbine or an AK-74 doesn't already have you. I mean, they're compact, they're lightweight, they're easy to shoot, and that, those are the those are big things for a PDW. So why would I want something in nine nine millimeter or you know, 5.7 by 28 when I could just I could issue them and they and they just are going to have to deal with a 5.56 or a 5.45 weapon. They're just going to have to deal with that. So uh, that's going to be fine. I mean, an AK-74 is a very lightweight, very compact gun. Um, and I don't even think you need to go down to the Krinkov type type guns or anything. I think, you know, the standard... For years, we used the M16A1 as a standard. Everybody got one, and, and that's what it was. And uh, I think it actually worked out. That actually worked out pretty well. Pretty well. Where we, where we went off the reservation was with the M16A2 and then it became big and kind of bulky again and heavier and then we decided well we need these these M4 carbines are really light and then finally we decided the M4 carbine for all practical purposes can do almost everything that an M16A2 does and in the war on terror it was a much more advantageous weapon to have so the M16A2, A3, A4 
just kind of became DMR or specialty rifles and uh, the Emperor Carbines supplanted it because it basically did the same thing the M16A1 did, which is everybody got one, everybody, it was handy, everybody could use it. So I, I don't think, I don't think that uh, the military pistol is going to make a resurgent, resurgence. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's probably what I would think are going to be the lasting impacts. I think the lasting, if I had to sum it up, because I've been kind of rambling here, if I had to sum it up, I would say that the lasting impacts will be a de-emphasis on other than standard issue arms. That is, give everybody an AK-74 is better than having some people with this, that, or the other thing. We don't need nearly as many pistols. Everybody should go to just whatever the standard rifle is because the rifles have become so lightweight and easy to handle that, you know, there doesn't need to be um, all this these specialty weapons. So that's what I think we'll, we'll see how that goes. Well, that's it for the 171st episode of Old School Guns. <laughs> I have to pay attention to those episode numbers. And uh, anyway, if you have any questions or comments, send them to me, kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>